So today we're looking at evidence that demands a verdict. I know that Easter has uh, been and gone, but we're going to continue the Easter theme and look at the resurrection of Jesus, and in particular this passage in John 20 printed inside your sheets. Uh, We're delighted to welcome back to the barge Alan Johns, who's a good friend of the barge, who's spoken here on a number of occasions. He works as a barrister and part-time as a judge as well. So thank you, Alan. Thank you, Marcus, and uh, yeah, let me add my welcome to Marcus's. And as Marcus said, there's the um, passage there printed on the um, inside of your uh, sheet. So let me read that f- uh, through for us. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me pray um, quickly before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here out of our busy days. Please speak to us by your powerful word and change us for our good and your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, whatever your opinion uh, of Margaret Thatcher, surely everyone loves the the music and the movies of her period as Prime Minister. So we've got a 80s and 90s mix CD that gets a lot of playtime in our kitchen uh, at the moment. And one of the tracks is from the uh, film Pretty Woman, uh, The King of Wishful Thinking, Go West, 1990. Well, if you've come along uh, today with a friend or colleague who believes that Jesus rose from the dead, you may think the King of Wishful Thinking is a pretty good description uh, of them. And even as believers, we may well have moments when we fear there may be something in that, when we fear perhaps the gospel is too good to be true. Because I suspect when it comes to an event as improbable as the resurrection, uh, there's a bit of the sceptic in all of us. Well, this passage today meets our scepticism head on. Uh, so let's get into the first point under the heading means of belief on the, on the sheet there, and that is seeing uh, is believing. Now, whatever our Bible knowledge, most of us have heard of the chap we meet uh, in this passage, Thomas, because we know him by the bad press that he's received ever since this was written. And of course, the name we know him by isn't the name there in verse 24, the twin. We know him, of course, as doubting Thomas. And we use his name to describe anyone who just refuses to be convinced without seeing something for themselves. In other words, a sceptic. Well, the first thing to notice is that Thomas absolutely deserves 
that reputation. He was an out-and-out sceptic. For him, only seeing was believing. Just a little bit of context. We're in the account of Jesus written by uh, one of his disciples, John. So another of the twelve, as he calls him in verse 24. And that account has already passed the point at which Jesus has been put to death on the cross and buried. And yet it's not the end of his book. In fact, it's not even the climax of it because John goes on to write about the risen Jesus. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'd have read the start of this chapter, chapter 20, where John lays out an account of Jesus' tomb being found empty and then of Jesus appearing, first to Mary Magdalene, then to all the disciples. Well, all the disciples except, as we read in verse 24, at the start of our passage, Thomas. He hadn't been with them, John tells us, when Jesus came. So, coming to this passage, Thomas is simply not buying it, is he? Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Look, says Thomas, I would need to see him with my own eyes, touch the very wounds he received on the cross before you'd catch me accepting something as improbable as Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, In 1848, a missionary explorer uh, by the name of Johannes Redmond became the first European uh, to set eyes on Kilimanjaro. And he made a presentation to the Royal Geographical Society here in London because he had an amazing fact to tell them, and that was this, that there was snow on this mountain even though it was on the equator. Their response? They rejected his story totally out of hand. The minutes record one of the leading geographers, William Desborough, saying, Sir, you need your eyes testing. They simply wouldn't accept what Redmond was telling them without seeing it for themselves. They were sceptics. And so is Thomas. He will not accept the report of even the other 11 disciples without seeing. Uh, Marcus mentioned uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins has apparently tweeted... Uh, that Thomas is the patron saint of scientists. Uh, Dawkins, you know, perhaps the most vocal sceptic of our time, apparently recognises in Thomas another sceptic. Well, verse 25 in our passage shows us he's right. Thomas is a sceptic. And yet, here's the thing. Thomas comes to believe because he sees. And that's obvious, isn't it, from Jesus' rhetorical question in verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? And what does he see? Verse 26, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas saw Jesus, the same Jesus who had died, stood right there in front of him, in the flesh, talking showing him his body, showing him the wounds on that body. Now, it's a popular idea, and one that may be uh, lodged in our brains somewhere, that the claim of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead, can be taken with a pinch of salt because of what the disciples must have been like. I mean, 2,000 years ago is a long time. Surely people were 
simpler back then, more gullible, more ready to believe in something like the resurrection. Well, that idea can't survive any half-decent look uh, at Thomas. He explodes it. For him, only seeing is believing. He was more sceptical than the royal society about snow on the equator. Uh, To have some idea that disciples are simpler, more gullible because they lived 2,000 years ago is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And he's right, isn't he? Because Thomas's reaction is actually uh, a thoroughly modern one, I think. I've had uh, many chats about my Christian belief to a friend at work, and these chats would often arrive at the same point, which is with my friend saying, but why doesn't God make it more obvious to me? Why doesn't he give me an incontrovertible sign then I would believe. And that's Thomas speaking. And the point, uh, I think, is this, that whatever else we may think about the resurrection, what we cannot do, what we cannot do is explain it away as the product of a more gullible age. The apostles may not be of our time, uh, but they are of our mind. They would not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead without seeing it for themselves. Only seeing was believing for them. Now, I say for them because, of course, we are not in that position. Coming 2,000 years later doesn't mean we're any smarter, uh, but it does mean that we haven't personally witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. We can never be those who have seen that historical event. So what does this passage have to say about people in our position? Well, Jesus talks about people like us, so people who have not seen there in verse 29. So Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So for people like us, it seems not seeing must be believing. Well, how can that be? Well, this is where our passage deals with another popular idea and again explodes it. And that's the popular idea that faith is all about leaving your brain at the door all about believing not just without evidence, but in the teeth of the evidence. Uh, Dawkins has defined faith like this, a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory uh, evidence. And that doesn't work so well as the title for a a pretty woman uh, song, but it brings us back to our king of wishful thinking idea. What does John say? Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In (coughs) acting terms, John breaks the fourth wall, so he turns out of the drama to address us directly. To tell us what? Well, not that he expects us to believe without evidence, let alone against all the evidence. In fact, what John says he's writing for, and it's what the apostles are all about, is to give us evidence, to give us evidence so that we can decide about Jesus, about this central claimed fact of the resurrection. Uh, But perhaps you're thinking, can I really decide, though, without having been there? Well, if that's you, let me say uh, two things. Uh, The first is this. Isn't it how we decide on any question of fact. After nearly 20 years as a barrister, 
Um, I've appeared in a reasonable amount of trials. Many involve questions of fact. And obviously you hear a lot of different arguments. But one I've never heard is a barrister say to the judge, uh, you can't decide that because you weren't there. In fact, it's so outlandish, I doubt if it's even been heard on Judge John Deed, uh, or if you prefer an earlier vintage of TV, Kavanagh QC. Um, of course the judge was not there, no, but no one thinks, no one thinks that renders him incapable of making a decision. Uh, and what's true for lawyers is true for historians. They believe on the evidence. And the second thing to say uh, is this, and that is that the evidence for the resurrection is far more substantial than for most cases a judge has to decide. The truth is God has gone to great lengths to give us evidence. He ensured there were a team of eyewitnesses, the apostles. He caused their account to be written down not long after the event. So John's account is written around 80 AD. In fact, he calls several accounts to be written. So we also have gospel accounts by Mark, Matthew and Luke. And that's as well as a raft of New Testament letters, all dating from around 40 to 100 AD. And God calls many copies of those written accounts to be made and preserved. So there are around 14,000 ancient copies of the New Testament documents compared with just 10 for Caesar's Gallic Wars, for example. And the oldest of them is only around 250 years after they were first written, which compares with 875 years for the oldest copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars. The truth is God has gone to great lengths. And so I have to say I do think we can decide without having been there. And certainly uh, better brains than me have done uh, just that. Uh, A former Lord Chief Justice, Lord Caldecott, said this. He said that applying an evidential approach to the cardinal test of the claims of Jesus Christ, namely his resurrection, has led me as often as I have tried to examine the evidence to believe it as a fact beyond dispute. And a former professor of history at Oxford, Professor Arnold, said this. I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Now, it may be that uh, you doubt the resurrection because you haven't yet looked at the evidence, and that is perfectly uh, understandable. Please do take up the invitation implicit there in verse 31 to pick up this account. These are written, says John, so that you may believe. And there are copies here at the barge on the table on the way out to um, uh, take away. And as you look at that account of John and perhaps read around it, which is what I did uh, as a sceptical young barrister about 16 uh, years ago, I think you'll see that the evidence is compelling. And even this little passage today that we have gives us a lot by way of evidence to go on. So first, there we see the quality of these eyewitnesses. Now, judges up and down the country, as they reach their decisions, will be asking, what is the quality of this witness? In other words, is this a witness that can be believed? Well, what better witness than an out-and-out sceptic? Isn't that precisely the sort of witness we would want in order to be persuaded Uh, of something as extraordinary as the resurrection. 
like the other apostles. Thomas wasn't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, not even when he said he would. He even refused to believe, as we've seen, the others. Uh, Second, the gospel accounts are not all alike. And this story highlights that because it appears only here in John. This isn't in Mark, Matthew or Luke. Now, if you work in litigation, you'll know that's an important badge of truth. If witness statements on one side in a case agree in every detail, that's a pretty sure sign the accounts are invented because real events happen in 3D. And so people have different perspectives on them. They notice different things, remember different things. And so the accounts of real events aren't identical. The third point uh, is this. The disciples just don't come off very well in their own accounts. As we know, Thomas has had bad press ever since uh, this was uh, written. And the commentators agree that verse 29 is a mild rebuke from Jesus. And again, this is a badge of truth. And human nature tells us why. When, when witnesses invent things, they tend to come off pretty well in the story. Uh, and the fourth and final point to notice is that the doors were locked. Look at verse 26. Although the doors were locked. And that was just like the evening eight days before, a verse just before your passage tells us, verse 19. And that verse tells us why. Verse 19, it's because the disciples were afraid. It says this, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why is that a point to notice in relation to the evidence? Well, because these cowering, fearful disciples are the same men who are totally transformed into the bold apostles preaching the risen Christ who go to their deaths proclaiming that fact. The resurrection provides the reason for that transformation. Uh, The fact is, there is snow uh, on Kilimanjaro. And if you're here and wouldn't describe yourself as a believer, please don't just dismiss the disciples as gullible men who need their eyes testing. Do look at the evidence for yourself. And one excellent way to do that would be to do the uh, Christianity Explored course, which is uh, on the notice sheets there, which I believe runs from the 22nd of uh, this month. But if you're here as someone who already believes, perhaps all this is a reminder that our belief is grounded in strong, solid evidence, and perhaps that can help us weather life's storms, because events will come along which challenge our faith. And if we give room to thoughts like, well, I may have got it all wrong about Jesus uh, anyway, We could end up letting go completely. But the answer to those thoughts is that our faith is founded on a fact which is fully supported by the evidence. I prefer C.S. Lewis's definition of faith to that of Dawkins. C.S. Lewis defines it in one sense as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Okay, much more briefly, the last two headings uh, there on the handout. Uh, Why take the trouble to look at the evidence at all? What should motivate us? What should motivate us to do that? Well, our passage leaves us in no doubt that facts and evidence are only part uh, of the picture. Because yes, John writes to give us evidence, but it's not his ultimate aim. 
his ultimate aim is there at the end of verse 31, and it's to bring life. So he writes, these are written so that you may believe, uh, and that by believing you may have life. John isn't a lawyer or a historian, simply wanting to present us with evidence so we can decide on a question of fact. He writes to give us uh, life. What on earth is he uh, talking about? Well, we've all been in the world long enough to know that there is something terribly wrong with it. And what is wrong with it, says the Bible, is us. We don't live God's way. We don't want to live God's way. So we've rejected him and we face his judgment. Except that we don't have to face it, says the Bible, if we will just believe in Jesus. Because he's already taken our punishment, taken that judgment on the cross. If we believe, there is an abundant and eternal life beyond death for us in a new and perfect creation with the risen Jesus. That is the life that John is talking about. And it's a life that begins uh, even now as we come into relationship with God through Jesus. Now, uh, Marcus alluded to this with the uh, Lennox event. You, You can't help but be aware of the debate out there between prominent atheists and Christians about the truth of the gospel. And the answer to that debate does rest on a fact, namely the fact of the resurrection. But we mustn't let that blind us to the reason for the gospel, the reason why John writes, and the motivation for looking at the evidence at all. And that is the offer to each of us of an amazing and an everlasting life. Yes, the gospel is true, but it is not merely true. It is also uh, wonderful. And that's why to believe, to believe is not merely to accept the fact of the resurrection. Um, And please don't misunderstand me, it's not less than that. I mean, if there was no resurrection, then the barge can pack up. It's all for nothing. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, the apostles' preaching is in vain and believers are to be pitied. So no, it's not less than accepting the fact of the resurrection, but it is more. And this is our last uh, heading very briefly. To believe means a personal acceptance of Jesus. Uh, We must accept him as our Lord now if we are to enjoy life with him forever. And that's what Thomas shows us in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. There are his words of belief, my Lord, my God, a personal acceptance uh, of Jesus. Uh, And I pray that they would be our words so that we may have that life that John um, wants for us. Well, thank you for listening. There'll be a time uh, for a few uh, questions in in a moment, but let me close this part of our time in prayer um, first. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great lengths you have gone to to give us proof that your Son is risen, uh, for choosing sceptics as your witnesses, and help us overcome our scepticism, we pray, in order to accept and keep holding on to your wonderful offer of life. Amen.